What does mental toughness mean? It's, I think it's taking it on. Uh, I think it's the, one of the things I was really good at is I could take it on the chin. I could lose famously in slam finals. And I guarantee you three days later, I was back to my job. Like I, I was I was happy to get off the canvas. It's like I can I can wallow in self-pity and get my two hours of work in. Like the, 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 those, don't, the, those don't have to be separate issues. Um, but I, I honestly think a lot of mental toughness that doesn't get talked about is preparation. You know, it's a lot easier to worry about something mentally if you know you've eaten everything right, if you, you, you get your sleep, if you, you go through the paces, you're not worried about your body. Like when I wasn't in shape and all of a sudden I'm in the third set and I'm not feeling great, I'm not as mentally tough because I'm like, I'm kind of starting to panic a little bit. Like, I don't want this to go longer. You know, maybe it's affecting my decision-making. Uh, maybe I'm making stupid decisions because I want to tap out of points. Like, that matters. I think preparation at the highest level matters mentally. And, and a lot of people don't put those together. Andy Roddick is one of the great players of the modern era. He was number one. He's now a Hall of Famer. He got to the finals of Wimbledon three times. He won the U.S. Open. And he's a good guy. I've spent a bunch of time with him. I hung out with him for a story when he was a rookie. I hung out with him for another story later in his career. And I always like spending time with him. And the guy is so much fun to talk about tennis with. I want to talk about strokes with him. I want to talk about serves with him. I want to talk about mental toughness facing Federer and Agassi and Djokovic and Nadal. What it's like to be at the top level of tennis Roddick can get into all of that. This is going to be awesome. It's Andy Roddick, one of the greatest to ever play tennis on Torre Show. Yeah, I was looking at your stats last night, and you had almost 10,000 service games in your career, and you won 90% of them. That's insane. Uh, 68% of your break points saved on 3,000 break points. That's insane. 80% of your first serve points won. Uh, unbelievable. I, I want you to please talk us through the serve and what it takes to have a great serve. And the, so just some of the technical things that you were doing so well. You're reading those stats, and I, I, I'm sitting here thinking, God, I wish I would have returned a little better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, think there's, I think there's a couple things that people focus on that are the wrong thing. You know, it's, it's even like a, like a great pitcher in baseball. Like, you look at, like, Clemens and, and Verlander and Nolan Ryan. These guys have tree trunks for legs. Like, people focus on, like, the arm and, like, what their arm action is, and they must be able to, like, you know, throw down. But... If you look at like the, the the really good servers throughout tennis history, whether it's it's Pete, whether it's Becker, uh, even Izovich is like the one skinny guy who who dropped bombs. But like there, there's like a there's like a base there, and I think people focus on like shoulder action and and that gets a lot of the attention. But you don't see a lot of a lot of big servers that don't have uh, a real big base. Um, two other technical things that I think are pretty consistent uh, with with big servers is it's not disjointed. It's not like the, for a right-hander, it's not like the left arm goes up and then the right arm's kind of playing catch up. Like if you think about Pete, he kind of goes down together, up together. If you look at Becker, he's kind of like, it's more exaggerated and lower, but it's down together, up together. Goran was one, like he, he kind of stepped, he, he stepped into it, didn't serve off two feet, but he was kind of the same way. Um, and the last thing is if every server who, who serves well, and I don't mean fast, I mean, well, meaning like, 
they get that late movement, right, to where you, you're trying to square up a return and the ball's kind of grinding against your strings a little bit. Uh, Pete is the best at it. He's like, I think he has the best service motion of all time. But um, he has a thing. You always, good servers always on your front shoulder, so it'd be your left shoulder if you're a right-hander. The great servers, right before they kind of make the move at the ball, they see the ball on the left side of their left arm. So there's like this V from their head to the left side of the arm. And that creates movement. You're able to kind of swing around and you can flatten it out or you can get some turn. A lot of the servers today, and I think of like uh, like Zverev, he has a problem with his serve, but he, he sees the ball like almost straight on on the right side of his arm. So therefore it goes straight. So even if it's 140, it's, it's straight. It's like a guy who throws 98, but it doesn't have any movement versus like Rivera's throwing 93, but it kind of saws you off at the end. I think, I think those are the things may, maybe that don't get enough, enough focus. The guys who have it big, who do it big, there's a bit, and you did this really well, they're big shoulder sort of stretch, right? Sort of the left shoulder mm -hmm. goes way up as far as you can. And the right shoulder comes way down to get that. Like that's a, that's a big thing into creating the power, right? Well, yes. And so like, I think anyone on the tour can hit a hard serve, like 130 if they, if they rear back, I think the movement and the kind of the action you're, you're talking about creates movement, but it also creates like, there are a lot of guys with big first serves that have terrible second serves, which the thing you're talking about, you don't see that shoulder action. Like Pete could all of a sudden kind of pull back and, you know, down break point against Andre rip a 115 second serve and it's aggressive and it's a risk, but it's a very calculated risk. You don't feel like he was going to miss it very often. Right. And, you know, whereas other people, if they're serving, you know, their regulars, 85, 90, and they rear back and try to hit 115 it's, you know, they might as well just go back to whatever their first serve percentage is, you know? So what you're talking about, I think is actually maybe more important on, on a second serve. And when you see the stats that you kind of reeled off at the beginning with the guys that if they're not, you know, isn't seven feet tall, so you can't really teach that. Um, but the guys who are like have held, you know, 88% and above, there's not one on that list that doesn't have a great second serve. Um, Roger included. I mean, he, he like his second serve didn't get enough credit because it doesn't go big. But you don't know if it's coming in at 80 or 98. You don't. You can hit it both ways. You can run it into your body. You know. So the the guys are able to pitch a good ball game on their second serve, and it's because of the action that you were talking about. Well, yeah, they talk about. I mean, everybody says the second serve is the most important shot in the game. You're only as good as your second serve. Your second serve was great. You kicked it a lot, and that kick is perhaps it is for me. It's been the hardest stroke to learn in the whole thing. For a lot of people, it's hard to really make it move and to make it leap up on people. What is the key to having it have that action, that, that leap up or the movement sideways so that Pete, so that you can, so people aren't going to like tee off on it. Yeah. So I, I I'd say for, for pros, you got to keep your racket head speed up. Like people, a lot of, and you'll see a lot of pros like will swing out of their shoes on a first serve and their second serve, their, their swing speed is, 70 or 80 percent of what it was the the great servers keep that swing speed up but they just you know you I, I always say like if you look at if you're in your kind of serve position i call it the trophy position right before you're about to make a move at the ball and you think of the tennis ball as like an orange and you would peel it from the left side to the right side that's kind of the the hand action that you need like coming up from below and then kind of almost like peeling an orange from the bottom left to the top right and that kind of creates a little spin. It kind of creates a little check. I mean, they talk about going for hit it, like try to meet it at like seven o'clock and go to like three o'clock. Yeah, I'm not real good at time, but you just you just kind of like you just kind of like <laughs> it's this little motion where like if you were like upside down and your picky was on top and you started peeling an orange from the bottom left side 
and then ended up on the top right side. That little movement creates like the check that you're talking about, which people re- refer to as a kick. I mean, it does take, you talk about that swing speed. It does take that moxie to be like, I got a second serve. I do not want to miss this. I got to swing as hard. Like, especially when it really matters to the pros, I can see a lot of people getting a little nervous. They want to like slow it down. Well, it's, it's weird though, because if you can create that spin, you actually going after it creates, uh, creates more margin in, 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 in a weird way. It'd be like, so the way I will equate it is if, if you have someone in basketball, like I remember Scottie Pippen, like shot the ball and it was a very flat trajectory. He was great at it, but there was a lot less room for air than someone like Steph Curry, who's like throwing rainbows. Right. So he, he can actually go do it. And it, it kind of comes like from, from low to high. And it, you know, so I think that same with the serve, like he can pull up and it looks like a risky shot from 30 feet. But because of the arc and because of the trajectory of his shot, it's not insane. Um, I, I think it's similar with with kind of great servers and their second serves. You actually have to go at it to create the spin, which creates height and margin. So when you stepped up second serve, break point, you still had that same confidence of like, I know I'm going to make this. I hoped I was going to make it. Um, <laughs> so like, I, I don't I, I knew it, it's weird. It's like I, I didn't really operate that way. I wasn't like and that's probably why I wasn't, you know, one of the greats. But like I would go up and I'd go, okay, best chance to get out of jail here is, is to go big, run it into the body. And I was f- kind of fine with that decision-making process. I didn't really worry too much about outcomes. It's like, listen, this is what I have to do to get out of jail. Let's try to execute as best we can. And it's going to fall where it does. I mean, y- y- you're so fucking modest. Wasn't one of the, you were number one in the world for a while, number two in the world for a while, competing in the finals of slams you got a slam the u.s open the which to me is the most important slam you you know hall of fame career on inarguably so when you get those big moments against a, a federer or whatever an agassi you know and it's a break point and it's close three four whatever tiebreaker are you nervous like what are you thinking about to like propel you through those moments well they're different um you know roger you know, I'd be more likely to run it like a big one in on the body. Cause when he's extended, he could just, I mean, we played the same point uh, for a decade where he'd kind of lay down that short chip to my backhand. I still to this day can't hit topspin on a backhand. Uh, and so I would pick my poison. I'd either have to come in on something terrible or kind of get to neutral on the backhand, which also wasn't a good, good place for me to be. So for him, I'd run it out a little bit more. Andre would get inside the court. And if you actually hit your spots wide against him, because his reach wasn't as good, uh, you, you could get away with kind of going after a second serve to different spots. So you would serve completely differently. Roger, if he got extended, was was better. Andre, uh, you know, he was hoping you were going to try to get away from him and miss. And if he actually got it square, I mean, there, there was no one better about just kind of squaring up uh, your misses um, as far as location. I mean, so you're thinking about strategy and execution, because a lot of people would get in those moments – and be nervous or thinking about like, you know, what I have to do to get it done. You know, the football coach sort of thing, like you can do it. And you're like, no, I'm thinking about the spot that I want to hit the ball and where I want to hit my next shot. And yeah, I mean, that, that all plays into it. And I actually wish I, I you know, I, I wish commentary. Welcome to 2020 when kids walk in. But um, I, I wish commentators actually broke that 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 down a little bit more because, you know, it, it's a lot of like, OK, serve forehand, serve backhand or hit to his. You got to find the backhand, but a lot of times, like against the best players, like you're not going to find Rafa's backhand unless you pull him wide to his forehand first to create some space, 
right? And so it, it, you, it's not as easy as like rec tennis where it's like, this guy's backhand sucks, just go after it. You know, th there's almost like a two-shot combo to everything. And serving is kind of the same way. Like there were guys that I knew, I would go into matches and say, like, I actually don't care what they do stylistically on the return. I can go through them. And as long as I have a high percentage of first serves, they're not going to get in the games. But then you run into like the Novaks and the Murrays and the Rogers who, if they get a racket on it, it's most likely they're, they're unbelievable at getting, at getting neutral. And so your Hewitt is in that class as well. Um, but you would, you, it would completely change to where it's not just what I'm bringing today. I have to adjust based on what they do well. Well, let's let's talk about some of the the legends who you played. I mean, you played Federer a bunch, big time matches. You know, Wimbledon. Yeah. Um, what what was it like facing this guy who you know, arguably the greatest of all time? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's weird because you get to a certain. I think you get to a certain level, and it all becomes matchups. You know, so it's 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 strange because I had a, a winning record against Novak, and you know not a horrendous record against Rafa and a disastrous record against Roger. That doesn't mean that Roger's automatically better. It means that what I did well played into his pocket a little bit more. He served well. I didn't return that well. I couldn't break him as much, you know, whereas, you know, Rafa second serves, I knew I could probably get a good hit on the first ball and at least get some action going. Um, so for Roger, it was, it, it was tough because, you know, I actually liked the guys who took big swings on returns. Um, you know, like uh, Andre was a great returner and I didn't have a good record against him, but I also knew that if I hit my spots, he was going to give me, you know, he was going to kind of lean one way. And if I actually hit the other way, you know, he, he was either going to be feast or famine. He was going to square it up and I was going to be on my heels or, you know, Andre got aced a lot, actually. Um, you know, Roger, he, if he got a racket on it, he'd feather it. It'd be deep in the court. We'd be at neutral. And that was just not a good place for me to be. Um, and he served well enough and, and kept me off balance. You know, a lot of, I, I could return. Okay if guys have predictable patterns, Roger was like unbelievable at, you know, however many matches later and however many pressure moments later, if you told me I had a break point against him right now, I still couldn't tell you where he was going to serve. And he could, he could throw it, you know, kind of behind his head with a kick toss and go T, you know, so I, I not being a natural returner, he was the toughest for me because he pitched such a good ball game. Uh, with his serve. And then when we got to neutral, he knew that he could kind of pull the string on that slice and I'd kind of be stuck on the backhand side. Um, you know, so it was, uh, he, he forced me to make uncomfortable decisions more often than anyone else. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. 
Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of Blackness. Each of NPR's Black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, the best player you ever faced? For me, yeah, it was that it, it was like a like I knew like Rafa is phenomenal and he very well could be the best of all time. And I actually think if Novak matches them in slams, I it, it's hard to actually argue against his record just based on stats and not preferences right. um, for him being the best of all time. So there's a very clear path to Roger, you know, not being the best two of all time um, when it's when it's sudden down. But uh, I, I I wouldn't want to like if I had to you know for for my house if I had to play someone in my prime, um, Roger would be the last guy that I would choose, you know, obviously. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. You wonder, and, and my friends asked me to ask you this question, because you wonder if a guy like you uh, has moments that you, that haunt you, right? Like when you think back on your career and there's moments that like, God, you know, like uh, 09, Wimbledon final, yeah. you win the first set against Roger, you're up 6-2 in the tiebreaker, um, yep. he, he hit some great serves, but you had some serves that you could, and then it, you had a point where you get a nice high backhand volley. Um, and, 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 and it went way out and you could have made it. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough shot, but you could have made it. Do you think about a shot like that or a moment like that? It's like, ah, oh, man, if I get that, I'm up two sets at Wimbledon. Ah, uh, not often. Um, I, I honestly, like, I don't, I don't, before this year when I, I actually started doing a little bit more. Um, stuff for tennis channel, like tennis just isn't part of my daily orbit. Um, I, I just don't do it. It doesn't dictate terms of, of any day that I live. Um, you know, this year's actually been nice to get back into it, but, um, I, people think I lie. like, I don't ever think about it. I, I actually watched, I was on a, like a stationary bike and they were playing it. Uh, it's like two years ago and I, I've, I've never actually watched the match back. Um, and the shot that pissed me off the most was, so the back end volley that you're talking about, it was a it was a choke on decision making and not so much the shot right so there's this crosswind that blows there and it was pretty it was actually pretty blustery that day and so the ball got up in the air and my first reaction was like it's actually going to float wider wider long um and then like it's in the air and you're yeah, this is all happening like within 3 seconds right and i'm like 
And I'm like, I'm not convinced. And then like the old thing is like, if you're not sure you play it. And so I choked on decision-making, right? I kind of panicked at the last second and kind of lurched at it. So you thought, um, don't hit it. And then you thought, no, I better hit it. Yeah. And, and then um, the thing is, is like with someone that good, like, so where I was in the court, had I just like kind of laid it off, I was, I was going to be three feet past the sideline. Um, if I didn't actually hit a winner on it, I was dead. And so at the last second, you kind of lurch on it. And I, I took a swing at it because I knew if I didn't, if I just played it back in the court, he was already recovered. Right, um, right. Like he was back, back neutral. So the, the, the options were let it go or you better hit a winner. And I obviously chose the wrong one and executed it horrendously. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's, 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 there's only like two or three people in the world who could make that shot. Do you, do you think that you make that shot in the second round, but because it's the finals and all these sort of things that you miss it? No, I don't think so. I, I honestly, like I, I wasn't really, I, I used to get a lot more nervous in the first and second rounds of tournaments, like just jittery. Um, I didn't know where I stood by the time I would get to like a semis or a final. Um, it, it, uh, I knew I was actually playing fine. Um, you know, I, I, oftentimes I wasn't, uh, you know, it, it was, it was an extreme, uh, you know, the person on the other side had a, had a, had a significant talent surplus and I still can't hit topspin on one side of my body. Um, you know, so th that, that was probably more stressful, but honestly, that was, I, I could have missed that just as easily, you know, miscalculating it. Uh, but the, the shot that pissed me off and I forget and no one ever talks about it is it's, 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 it's amazing. Um, I, I don't know if it was at six, one or six, three. No, I, I guess I wasn't up six, one. It was sometime in the breaker, like on when I was kind of gagging away those, those, those set points, but I hit a forehand, like I was on the run out of position and I'd kind of just let it fly. And I put it on his shoe tops, like on, on his shoe and off the short hop, he just kind of like flicked it into the, but I, in a weird way, if that had been at six, five, I don't know that he makes that shot. Like, I think it was like, oh gosh, this breaker's over. And he just kind of like nonchalantly flicked it. That's one of the most amazing shots I've ever seen that no one ever talks about. Yeah. Like, I'll miss that. I'll miss that backhand way more often than he actually makes that shot. And I, 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 I had completely forgotten about that. And when I watched it back for the first time, I was like, motherfucker. Like, that was, that was insane. Like, that was unbelievable. There's definitely some just like racket flicky shots that he just makes. Ugh. That's like, Jesus Christ. Um, I want to talk about no. some more of the G the, the, the greats who you've played, but I, I want to touch back on one more thing technically, because you, you, you slagged your backhand a bunch, but that's because your forehand was also pretty fucking awesome, which allowed you to get through and win a lot. Um, because you can't do it with just a serve. And, you yeah. know, your forehand was super world-class. What'd you do so well on the forehand that you want other people to start to think about to improve their forehand? Yeah, I, I was, I was, I had a really good forehand early on in my career. Um, and I haven't really talked about, I, I had a, uh, a small tear in my shoulder and it was like, Oh, eight. Um, and it, it kind of transformed the shot because I, 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 it was weird because it didn't really hurt my, my, my serve much, but on my forehand, kind of that, that pinch on the front of the shoulder, I kind of had to readjust to where it became more of a, a little bit of a loopy shot. And ha I had to kind of, kind of surround that adjustment by getting faster and kind of losing, kind of learning how to move a little bit better. But, um, you know, early on in my career, it was kind of like a, it was a little bit of a blunt force trauma. You know, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty simple. Like anytime I had two feet underneath me, 
uh, I needed to create space between me and my opponent, right? So that means I had to drive it through the court. I, I, I thought about it. I was just trying to keep as much space between the two of us as possible. Um, and, and that was kind of that long kind of laid down uh, forehand to where they, they were never going to get inside the court on my forehand. You were Western on the forehand? I don't know grips. I don't know. I really don't. Um, if I had a racket, I could show you, but I don't know. I, I don't know all the stuff. I wasn't like a super, you know, they, they don't teach a lot of technique in Nebraska. So I, I, uh, I, I actually don't, I actually don't know. I know my backhand, I made an adjustment to where it actually really helped. I used to, you know, kind of try to do it, but I almost had this like shovel grip, like where if you held like a cooking pan and then you just put the other, and I could actually shove it. I didn't miss it late in my career. That, that got a lot better. My forehand got worse. But you can't, you came over it real well. You hit it really hard. I mean, you definitely put people in trouble with that forehand. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things that makes kind of forehands better is a lot of people hit it well one way. Um, you know, you think of, uh, well, Courier was amazing, but you think, uh, you know, there's some guys who are like a lot of Eastern Europeans have those grips that you would probably know the name of where, you know, it's a little, it's not as, it's not as Western. And when I see that, I'm like, okay, so they're going to actually come around the ball. So their forehand to your forehand from both sides of the court is probably going to be their best shot. But like down the line, it's tough to go around the outside of the ball and actually get guidance down the line. I was able to kind of hit all the spots in my forehand. So it probably made it look a little bit better than it was. I could hit it inside out. I could pull it to their forehand. Um, I was happy hitting it both ways on the run. So I think just the fact that I could kind of hit all the spots with my forehand kind of made the the court a little bit bigger for me. Um, it, it made it a little bit of a better shot. Um, I, I mean, I know a guy as big as you who hit the ball as forcefully as you, you would generally expect that person to come in more and knock off volleys. And you really didn't. You stayed back a lot. Do, do you think about that? Like you could have been a little more effective if you'd been able to come in more? Well, I, I came in a lot actually when I started working with, with Connors, um, you know, so I, I, uh, yes and no. I mean, it, it's funny because people would always say, like, I get that question a lot and it's, so you opened, you opened the conversation with me holding 92% of my career, which is like third all time. And then inevitably someone asked, well, why didn't you serve in volley more? I go, cause that's not the part I needed to fucking do. Like I was, I, I held all the time. You know, it, it like if it would please uh, everyone else's eyes and make the narrative easier for like being a more complete player, but that wasn't really my goal. My goal was to try to win something. Um, you know, so I I I, uh, I didn't mind it, but later on in my career, when I didn't really have the you know the knockout power in the forehand, I, I actually had to move better and kind of chip learn how to chip the ball around to create kind of different different pattern options. So. Um, honestly, like my, like, let's say I serve someone hits like a neutral chip ball. We refer to the backhand. I, the volley I missed earlier, that was like one of those floaters. I would have gotten a million and a half of those throughout my career. Had I served and volleyed more, I would have rather had two feet under me with a forehand and kind of distribute that way and have my approach shot be actually the best volley that I have. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you referred to, um, being coached by one of the greatest players of all time, Jimmy Connors, um, yeah. just such a thrill to watch him. Um, what, can you talk about some of the great advice that he gave you? I love Jimmy. Um, and he's complete, but like when you know Jimmy, well, um, it, it, he's, it, his personality and the way he went about coaching would be completely counter to what you would think just from him, like dry humping the New York crowd when he hit a good shot for, for 20 years, you know, which was amazing by the way. Um, but 
uh, you know, it's weird because when we started working together in, in 06, he hadn't been around tennis in, in 14 years. And I, I don't mean like been around tennis. Like he was there. Some, like no one saw him for 14 years. Like he stopped in 90. I think he played the 92 us open kind of on the heels of 91, obviously. And I, I might get the dates wrong, but he disappeared. Like no one saw him. Um, and so when I kind of convinced, he didn't know any of the players, you know, so when we're talking about coaching, it was purely, you know, it, it was the first time my mindset changed to like, let's really, really completely focus on, on what we need you to do better. And so, uh, the, the, the footwork that he was able to, to, to kind of guide me down, cha- completely changed my life. And I actually wouldn't have been able to adjust and stay relevant. Um, once I kind of lost knockout power on my forehand without him kind of tweaking my footwork and he, he made my back end into a, it was never going to be great, but he made it into not a weakness. And especially against not the top players, I never lost matches because of my back end. Um, I could keep it down. I could hit it flat. I could keep it in the court. Um, but his biggest thing was like, I struggled my back and it used to be kind of like both arms would go out straight and I would kind of shove it. Yeah. And, and the best piece of advice he gave me to where I actually had a pretty serviceable back end from then on, he goes, he goes, I want your left elbow to be soft. He goes, just, just soften your left elbow. Don't think about anything else. Just make sure when you're taking it back, that's soft. And just by that one thought, it fixes six things, right? It's impossible to have that soften a little bit and, and, and reach for the ball. Like you can't get like the, the reach thing. Your footwork is automatically better because you're closer to the ball. So he had this way of like fixing one thing, which would then kind of have this trickle down effect to where he'd fix five things without you even knowing it. What were some of the footwork things you talked about? Just smaller steps. He, he he talked about like, listen, don't hit your forehand kind of fading away. Like he always talked about like this, like, like a, like a C or like a half circle. He goes, all of your footwork needs to almost be like a half circle, right? So if you're, if you're hitting a backhand and you're running, you kind of need to adjust on your forehand. If you, if you can't get there to hit your shot with just this little quick, you know, two or three step movement, if you're, if you're moving to your left and you're kind of fading away, that should be a back end. And you need to firm that up and look for the right ball. Because he goes, you do the fadeaway forehand and it opens you up to you know, the back end down the line. And you're busy. You're taking two steps to recover just because you want to hit a certain shot. So, um, and also he, he was big on like just a little bit of forward movement on every shot with your feet. So even if it's a backhand, don't hit it and kind of jump backwards like I did. He's like, even if it's just a feeling and like the intent of hitting a backhand and having one inch of body movement going forward, your feet have to make that happen. So again, by kind of having that one thought where every time you hit the ball, obviously if you're on the dead run, it's not the same, but anytime you can, if you can just inch forward a touch, it kind of fixes, it fixes your footwork in a lot of different ways. So just that kind of mindset of trying to get forward a little bit on every shot, not like where you're hitting and you're running forward three feet and being ridiculous, but um, just kind of the intent of not losing ground and maybe inching forward just a touch. Some of the other greats who you faced, you were early Nadal era. Um, so he mm-hmm. was still coming up, but you guys had some great battles. Do you, do you, are you ahead of him career-wise? No, I, I don't know what I – maybe like 4-7. I mean, it's a pretty good split. It's, it it, it kind of went as you thought. Like I, I played him on some fast surfaces, and I got some wins, and then I did a couple of uh, suicide missions away in Davis Cup on clay. Um, you know, Indian Wells, slow, high bouncing. I think I lost him there a couple times, um, beat him in Miami. Um, you know, but it was, it, it was weird. Like you get him on his surface and it's like, there's, there's not, there was not much that I could do. Um, but besides trying to find religion that was going to get me through, um, I mean, against him. I imagine that it would be really annoying 
to play him because the ball is bouncing up to your shoulder all the time. It's just no fun yeah. to hit that high bouncing ball all day long. It's it, it, him. I think is a single biggest differential between like the surface mattered the most, right? Like Novak slow. He was still better than fast. Like he's a great, you know, he, he probably been something that doesn't get talked about enough is he's probably been the best player in grass for the last decade. Absolutely. And, and well, people don't the last decade. Just, people, he's the best player in the world. Well, for sure, but specifically, like it, people are kind of like lazy with analysis. So, like, okay, Rafa's on on clay, Rogers on grass, and they, they basically give Rafa Roger a lot of credit for the years that he was beating me. But like since 2010, Novak's been the best player on grass, and he's beaten everyone on grass. Um, you know, so it's Rafa was the matchup that was if I was on something really fast, like I played him in Dubai one time. I knew I like if if I made first serves, he wasn't going to get neutral a lot. You know, I, I'd serve and volley against him a lot more. But there were at least things that I could do that could maybe upset him. Whereas, like on a slow court against him, it's if he can back up, get some space, and he creates so much action, like you were talking about, that create that changes the entire dynamic because all of a sudden he can swing on my first serve as opposed to just guessing and like stabbing and 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 kind of hoping. Um, so hit, hit, the matchup with him was the most surface dependent of of the three and i mean they talk about how he likes to wear you down so like you know by the second set you're just kind of tired and you're just kind of like jesus i kind of want this to end like was that how it felt it did we didn't really have like we didn't play we didn't play a ton in slams um you know so i i kind of i played him once early at the u.s open and kind of ran through him pretty easy and then towards the end of my career, we played the U S open, but I'd played like a monster against Ferrer the day before. And I was kind of like, feel like I was done. Um, so he, he's like, you remember mortal Kombat when it's like, finish him. I was kind of just sitting there and he just tore my head off. Um, but it's weird. Like I didn't get that because I actually didn't give the, the chance. Like I knew I had to serve in volley. I knew that any ball I had that I could take a swing at, you know, you just come out of your shoes. So I, I, I wasn't real interested in getting into those long rallies against, against him that just wasn't going to end well so i don't know that i got the full rafa experience to where you know it's a set all you're two hours in and you're looking for the exit door um you you know i I don't know that i ever had that that full experience but i I, i've certainly seen it um you grew up loving agassi you got to face him toward the end of his career but he was still a great player while you were pretty much at the height of your powers as a younger guy um what was it like facing agassi he he's a single best ball striker that I've ever seen or or played against. Um, what he's able to do, like just like Novak's amazing because he is able to distribute the ball, change directions without it feeling risky. But Andre, if you put him, you know, on one side of the court and hit balls to him, like his ability to take full swings on a ball that lands two feet in front of him is something I've never seen before. Like his, his eyes pick it up and the way he's able to kind of you know, move on it um, is, is, is insane. I feel like Novak is like a microcosm of the evolution of tennis, but what Andre would look like now, if he was five inches taller and could cover the court, two more steps on, on each side. Um, he, he, his ability to kind of square up the ball and bully you, like you couldn't go through them. And the other thing, like I can be like, oh, okay, you, you could rip forehands. Yes. But I needed time to set up and like, like set. And then I could give it a ride. Andre could give it a ride without needing the time. Right. Like, so you could hit a big ball to him and he could kind of just like 
square it up and you're like, well, that, that, that doesn't seem fair. Like that, that wasn't like, I, that was, that was, I, I, that took a lot of effort for me and, and, and you, you kind of just like handled it. So that, that's kind of intimidating in its own way. You talk about Novak and the width of the court that he's able to Ugh. do. And and I think this is one of the things that, that commentators don't talk about enough that makes him different that, you know, most people like say can get to within a foot of either sideline and hit a strong shot outside of that. They're hitting a weak shot and hoping to stay in the point. Novak can, can stretch two steps beyond that and hit a strong shot. So his court, is wider than yours, where he can hit great shots from um, it, it physically, movement-wise. He's unbelievable. He's unbelievable, and 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 I think you hit the nail on the head. There are guys who are like fast, but you don't feel you don't feel them as much because when they're extended, they don't get a lot on the ball. I, I think actually Novak and uh, Andy Murray are the best I've seen about like being full. Actually, Medvedev now is a, is amazing at it. Um, but being fully extended and being able to kind of like still get something on the ball, kind of keep it down. But the number one thing that Novak does well, that doesn't get talked about enough is he's the best I've ever seen at getting the pattern that he wants against anybody, right? He's the only guy that Rafa can hit that kind of get out of jail free, you know, forehand cross court that gets up and away on, on a right-hander, which is basically dictated the terms of the entire uh, rivalry with Roger on slower surfaces. But Novak's the only guy that can not be stressed while taking that ball line and finding Rafa's backhand with margin. Um, you know, and against Roger, he can find the pattern where he's hitting deep backhands to Roger's backhand and he can pin him in that corner. He, he his ability to change directions without it being risky is is unbelievable. And he makes it so easy that it's almost like people don't talk about it. Like it's not it's not the shot like Roger where we're talking like he picks it up off the uh, shoe tops and it looks amazing you're like whoa you know the, the stuff that Novak does well is isn't isn't obvious to the eye I, I I don't think and so you know that that could be part of it but his ability to kind of switch directions to find the pattern that he wants in a given matchup is is something I've never seen what does eating healthy mean to you whatever your eating goals Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. You Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free 
on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, how did you figure out a way to get past him at all? Because he seems like this ultimate wall who can kind of do everything. Well, if we're we're being fair to him, like I didn't get, I didn't get prime. That's right. Novak. That's right. So, you know, I, I, I got the version where his, his technique on his forehand was a little too big. You know, he used to take a big swing so I could hit that. I could hit a chip down to his forehand all day. And, you know, he'd make, he would, I'd pay for it sometimes, but he would miss, you know, the forehand was a little jittery. So, you know, 30 all his serve, he, he would miss sometimes. Um, I, I think the fact that I could serve through him um, and, and, and can I go big on a second serve? I had the option to at least make him uncomfortable um, on the return, um, you know, which as, as kind of strings have made it the returner way better. I think it's actually, I don't think guys serve as well as they do in the nineties. And that's the only thing that guys did better kind of, I'm not one of the guys who like, you know, thinks his generation was way better. I, I that, that ship has sailed, but just by virtue of uh, growing up on faster services, I think there was more of a premium put on serving. Um, so I was probably maybe one of the last guys that wasn't seven feet tall uh, that could bother Novak consistently with with heat on the serve yeah you got you got gluten eating novak which is a whole different thing than when he yeah. when he changed his diet and everything well I, that's 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 100% accurate by the way like his 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 fitness used to be a, a liability to the point where you would pay you would play him in like i i played him in australia in 09 and like i saw the weather forecast and it was like it, it might have well just been like a like a hair dryer i mean it was so hot and I was like, this is awesome. Like, and I actually thought back to a piece of advice Andre gave me early in my career, uh, where I was asking, I was like, God, you go out in this like Australia heat and like, you just kill guys. Like he would actually predict like the guy's going to tap out midway through the the second set. Cause I'm just going to work them. And I was like, he goes, man, he's like, I don't get it. Like everyone in any other, in any other job, like your job, you have to compete against all of the content creators, all of the journalists, all of the interviewers, all, you know, you got, you're, you're kind of going against all of them in some way, shape or form. He goes, I go out there in Australia on a hot day. I only have to be more comfortable than one guy. And I was like, that made it simple. <laughs> that, that's, that's a, that's a simpler way to look at it. And so anyways, I thought about that that day with Novak, but like the heat used to really get to him. And I don't know that like, uh, listen, I, uh, apparently I shouldn't have eaten bagels, but, um, but like the, the, the biggest transformation I've ever seen is, is his fitness being a liability, him transforming it into being, uh, a strength. Um, you played a bunch also against one of, if not my favorite player of all time, Pete Sampras, who was just a joy to watch play. Um, what was it like facing that guy? Um, so I didn't get the, I, I played him twice where I, I, I don't know that I got the full, the, my first kind of big win on a stadium court. The first time I was like the ESPN televised match was against him in Oh one in Miami. And I, you know, it's to the point where that those matches where I played, where I would play Andre as like an 18 year old or 17 year old, I, I would have to like check myself from looking across the court because I saw Pete, like, you know, flicking the eyebrow and like looking down his tongues out and he like adjusts his shirt with both, you know, with both deals. And it was like this, the most surreal moment, but, um, you know, Pete, I, I, I didn't mind as much just because I knew I, I, I could hold serve. Um, you know, my kid, my big kick actually bothered him a little bit. Like he got up and away. And so the first two times I played him, 
I, I won both matches and I'm like, man, I, I think, I, I think I like this matchup. You know, I, I think I, I'm pretty convinced I like this matchup. Um, and then you fast forward to the O2 us open quarterfinals and Pete was Pete that day. Um, he came out in the first, I, I don't know if it was a first, second service game and, and chipped and charged on a first serve and kind of like put away a volley. And then he kind of looked at me like for a second and like, like, you know, he, like, he, he doesn't talk trash, but he kind of just looked for a second and did like a little skip step back. And I'm going, Oh fuck, this is, Oh go. This is, this is like, this is the real slim shady. This is like, this is, you know? And so anyways, I was out of there in like an hour, but it, it's a weird way. I'm, I'm, I'm pissed that, you know, you're mad. You didn't see it a lot, but like, I'm pissed. I lost that match, but I also kind of, in a weird way, I'm, if I had to lose, I'm happy. I at least got to see him in full flight once. Cause the first two matchups, I actually didn't mind it. He would miss the back end. Sometimes I could get through service games pretty easily. Um, you know, I actually returned okay against him. Um, you know, so it was it, the first two times I felt like it was a real good matchup. And the third time it was, it was, it, it was like, okay, I, I, I see you. I, I got it. I understand. <laughs> you, you talk about the generations and like, yeah, this current generation um, led by the big three is perhaps the greatest of all time. It, it, I'm wondering why it is that nobody else has emerged. These guys have basically skipped two. They've dominated like three generations of players, right? Yep. Um, you wonder, like, no, I mean, it would be like like Kobe continuing to be the best player in the NBA, right? Like, yeah. what, why is it that nobody else from the entire globe has been able to come in and break through and make it a legitimate four or five? Like, you think over 20 years, somebody's got to come out of Europe or America or somewhere. Well, I mean, you would you would argue that Walrinka did that, that Murray did that, um, but— yeah, your point. Your point is the same. I, I think something that also like doesn't like kind of gets overlooked. You mentioned Kobe, but um, like LeBron is doing that. Um, he's still the best Long player career. in the game. Yeah. Uh, Tom Brady is doing that. Um, you know, and so I, I think the the revolution of treatment um, of you look at you know a knee surgery used to put you out for like six months, and now it's like you know, three weeks and bingo, bango, and like, you can fix it in an off season. So I think those type of things have really extended careers. I think the monotony of surfaces. So it's always like it starts at medium and it's either slightly slower than medium or slightly faster than medium. Right. So you're not going to get, uh, like Pete could get upset by someone early in a slam because they're serving huge and it's a slippery court. And obviously that was his, that was, you know, his best, but like you would get variations to where, different guys would play well and could upset someone. I think, um, you know, I think it was a, no one will ever admit it, but the mid nineties, a lot of the rhetoric was, Oh, these big servers, it's boring to watch. You just walk from one side to the other and it's not. And then all of a sudden in the mid two thousands, like the rallies are going for, for, for 30 balls. And it's not as if kids were training on slow services up to that point. Like they had already, you know, they arrived at 18 and the surface was all of a sudden, you know, a, a little bit muted. Um, and so I think that has something to do with the extended greatness of of, of these guys. Also, you um, you're the last American man to be number one in the world, and you came after I think we could say three generations from the '60s, the '70s, the '80s, and, and '90s as well, where we're just used to like three, four, yeah. five American men at the top of the terms all the time. Um, we don't have that anymore. Um, 
no slag to any individual player, but why do you think American men's tennis, because women have not, women have continued to be uh, dominating mm -hmm. and at the top of the, why do you think American men's tennis has not been as great as we were used to in the years and the decades before you? Well, one, I'm glad you specify that the, the women are doing their jobs because I get that question a lot and it's like, what's wrong with American tennis? I'm like, I mean, it, I, nothing if you've been watching the women, like it's, it, it's just, you're kind of continuing the, uh, you know, the, the, the dominance. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a, I think there are a lot of factors. I think just the, the, the general popularity, you know, if you have a kid and you're going to put them in a, a sport, do you want the one that people travel for 11 months a year? don't make a guaranteed salary and you know you have to be top three in the world to make like what a bench player in the nba makes um you know is that a is that a good decision i, I don't know um I, I think the rise of popularity worldwide has simultaneously existed with kind of uh, a, a flattening of enthusiasm um uh, for the sport outside of the majors i think a lot of that has to do with with uh, the, the way that uh, they dictated which tournaments counted for a while. So there used to be uh, the bet you would basically, let me, let me get this right. You would play, you were man, you were, you had to play 13 events. This is like back, you know, nineties, early two thousand. you had to pay 13 events. I think there were eight super nines or something. Like, I don't know, but you basically had to play 13 events and then you, you could fill the last five slots with any tournaments you wanted. Right. So my decision at the beginning of my career was like, well, you know, I'd rather stay home. I'd rather fly an hour and a half to Memphis than go to Beijing that week. And that actually matters because it's like I'm staying, I'm going, some kid sees you, he's interested. There's something happening in Memphis is a big event. You know, those are the kind of moments that, you know, I had it in 92 at the Davis Cup final. I went and it blew my mind. I was it was in Dallas and I lived in Austin. I went there. I'm like, my God, I have to do this. Like, you I, see? I have to do this. I, it was uh, the team was fucking amazing. It was Andre, uh, Jim Courier, who doesn't get talked about enough, uh, Pete Sampras and John McEnroe played the doubles. It was, was insane. Arthur, and was that Arthur? Who's coaching? Arthur Ashe was coaching? Or was that Tom? No, Tom Gorman. I think I want to say it was, I, I hope I don't get this wrong. I want to say Arthur was already sick and had, had, had maybe even, even passed. Um, but it was Tom Gorman was, was the captain. Um, but anyway, so you used to be able to actually have like some selection to do it. So Fast forward, they change, uh, you know, the, the 500 designations, the 250 point uh, designations. But so I could only play, I could only count two 250s at a certain my, point in my career, as opposed to having my my pick of the five events to count. And so I'll give you an a specific example. In 2010, I went to Brisbane before Australia. I won it. So that's one 250 gone. Um, play Australia. My first tournament after Brisbane is San Jose of which I had a, an endorsement deal with SAP at the time, I made the final. So now India is coming to me and saying like, hey, we'd like to have you. Uh, all the American tournaments, Atlanta's coming to me saying, we'd like to have you. And in my mind, I'm going, I have to win this tournament to make one point because you were only allowed to count two 250s. So they designated that you had to play the 500, you had to play four 500s, and then you could only count two 250s. So instead of saying, hey, I'd like to count four, four, four 250s for my, my ranking and it's my choice and I can go play where I want, all of a sudden it's the second week in February and I'm in a position in 2010 where I have to win a 250 to add one point to my ranking total, 
which kills the bigger events. Cause the only way I'm going to go there is if they offer me, you know, an appearance fee of God knows what, and then you kill it. Cause they can't get a sponsor to actually pay that. So I, I do think there's like a trickle down effect. I just think they, they really messed up kind of the freedom of choice with players, which manifested itself in, in, in the, the, the top Americans, maybe not going to these events, which, which matters. I mean, it just, it just matters. I've heard some folks talk about because the tour is so breakneck, you win something and you're off to the next thing the next morning. And there's really not time to celebrate. You've won mm-hmm. a, a mid-level tournament or even a major tournament. And you got to get it on a plane the next day and fly somewhere else. And there's, you know, like basketball, football, whatever, they they take moments to celebrate. And like, you guys don't really have time to, is that sort of yeah. the way that it feels? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but that, that's kind of always been that way. You know, I, I don't think that's an explanation for for like American men's tennis, just because that's kind of the way it's always been. But no, I, I but think just the nature, think, like, just, gets, just the nature of the game itself. Yeah, is yeah. That, like, you know, you're, you're by yourself, you're not yeah. really celebrating. Yeah, I mean, I you go, you know, I I always love the uh, and trust me, I'm not I'm not, you know, volunteering to get hit or deal with you know concussions or anything else. But I would always kind of laugh when they're like, oh, the the you know the the Jets have an, a West Coast game this week. You know, the time difference is going to be amazing. They only have three days to adjust. I'm like, man, I played in Memphis on Saturday and Dubai on Tuesday. Like, you know, it's, I know it's 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 uh it's it, it's very different, but um. I, you you kind of mentioned like the breakneck thing. I, I think there's actually the schedule gets talked about. And I, I actually, for two reasons, one, you want to keep your, there's no home team. So you have to keep your stars in the game longer. You know, the fact that Andre played till 36 was great. The fact that Rogers playing to like, nobody's losing because of that, even if they're playing less events. Right. So you have to give some grace and not make these mandatory events for people, you know, even, even like Marat Safin, if you could have kept him in the game three years longer, even if he's 60 in the world, that's great. You have to. You have to keep like for me, if I would have known I could have gotten away with playing 10 events a year, I'm going, OK, well, maybe my shoulders go. But you start getting fined if you don't play the mandatory events it's like listen, I'm not going to pay to play tennis. Um, <laughs> but I, I, th- I actually think there's a simple fix because you know, say, well, you can't shorten the season because players rank 70 in the world need paychecks. Like I, I completely understand that. But what you do is you get you after the U.S. Open, you stack it with your important master series in Asia. You get through the European circuit with Bear C, you play Masters Cup, you make it a shorter season. And then for the last, you know, two months of the year, it should only be 250s. So if the two if they want to pay a player to come or guys 50 in the world want to keep playing 11 months a year, they should. But the last month or six weeks of the of the of the calendar should only be 250s. Well, one of the things that that breaks my heart looking at tennis over a 30, 40 year period, um, you talk about the the impact of of the Davis Cup on young erotic and like i grew up like watching davis cup and like paying attention and like it really mattered you wanted america to win and you know they they would have these amazing matches in argentina where the crowd is like losing their mind which you do not see in other sort of matches even in, in majors it's not the same energy and somehow the davis cup has been kind of like lost and squandered and it's just not the same exciting thing and rogers trying to do something similar with the labor cup and create something new it's not quite there um i mean i'm just so disappointed that the davis cup has been lost what can we do no i don't know i think the ship has sailed unfortunately but it's 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 the itf's fault like you you couldn't you have to innovate like 
if you're a blockbuster, you better be looking for Netflix. Like you got, you got to like, you, you got to know what's coming. You got to adjust. And so the, the, the kind of powers that be that were running Davis cup had a very arrogant attitude of this is the way it's always been deal with it. You know, it's like, all right, well, you do that long enough. People are going to deal with it in their own way and they don't have to play. Um, and, and you saw that, um, you know, so, you know, I, I think it should have been like maybe spaced out over the course of two years, you know, first and second round, one year, third and fourth round, and then younger players can jump into the team. There's like, there's some excitement. You're constantly kind of trying to earn your way. Um, and you just kind of also have to give people an opportunity to, to miss something. Like we, when we won, we played December, I don't know, we won December 10th. And then the first round for the next year was like February 1st with a slam in between. And so it, it made no sense. And so, you know, the ITF for so long, they're like, well, we are Davis cup. No one will dare challenge us. And it's like, bro, like you're going to lose it. And so then all of a sudden there's ATP cup and labor cup and they're, they're just never going to be the same, but the ITF just didn't innovate. They didn't want to change anything. They were pretty arrogant in their decision-making. There were people in charge who, you know, only wanted to go to cocktail parties in different countries and stuff, you know? So it was, it was their fault. I mean, they, they, they killed it by not innovating. They talk about, you know, there's not that much difference on court between a guy who's what, 50, 60, 70 versus a guy who's like 10. Um, I think the top five is generally really special for whatever reason. But so what's the difference between being a good high elite elite level, good player and a great player? Um, treating it like a job. You know, not like like a hobby, and that that that's that kind of, makes you great. Get off of the t- it makes you better. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you'd be shocked at the amount of guys who, you know, I, for me, it's like I woke up at six thirty in the morning, and from six thirty until seven at night, I would I, I wasn't training, but I made sure that I ate. Uh, you know, I had food in my belly and was digesting for two hours before I did my track workout, and then post track workout, I knew I had to get so many calories in 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 my system immediately for recovery to avoid injury and to get ready for the afternoon session of of two-on-ones and then after two-on-ones every single day you would get treatment you know there was stretching massage stem if you needed it and then you had to load up at night and you know and then all of a sudden i think some guys are like oh, i'll get a snickers before practice you know uh, i'm tired for this afternoon it's like no like can you imagine going in the interview and not like googling someone right like it just doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Like it doesn't, you know, or, or doing your research or talking to someone else who might have a question that you didn't think of, or, you know, it's just, it, it, it's insanity, but you'd be amazed at how many people like kind of just show up and do it. And they're just kind of good at it. Whereas like, you, you don't find someone who's five in the world who it, it's a, it's a lifestyle lifestyle, not something you do. What'd you do on the track? You talked about those morning workouts. So I guess that's probably for, yeah. for cardio and stuff. What'd you do? Well, I, I had a strength coach in Austin. And so th- that was more like, uh, you would, you would create pockets in your schedule. So that was like off season every morning there would be, uh, my, my strength coach was a guy named Lance Hooten in Austin. And so one day it'd be long distance. The next day it'd be footwork. Uh, you would do, you'd have a big med ball out there. So you do a lot of your like lifting, but it would be kind of a, not just a machine where you're creating like beach muscles, but it doesn't actually have any function. Um, and so I would, I actually like to do fitness in the morning for a couple of hours. And so it, it would almost, then when you were hitting in the afternoon, it almost, it almost simulated being in the fourth and fifth set. Cause you had already gotten your work in. So your legs weren't fresh. And so, especially going into like Australia in the first kind of three months of the year, um, I, I, I love doing that because if I had fresh legs, at the beginning of the match, it was like, it was like a gift. Right. 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 Yeah. 
Um, so, it, 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 um, you talk about, I, I just want to stick on this, you talk about doing long runs and I've heard people go back and forth. I talked to James Blake. He was like, no long runs. It's well, all okay, sprints. So, so he's not wrong. I, I wouldn't go for six mile runs. And what I mean is like, uh, you would always do dynamic and he's, he's exactly right. Um, but it would, uh, the long runs would be like three or four hundreds. Right. Where you're doing like long, where you'd be at, you know, you're not going to sprint it, but you'd be at like 80, 90% where you're pushing. So when you're done, you feel like vomiting if you do, you know, and then you have quick turnaround. Um, you know, re your recovery time gets less and less as you go further. So it gets tougher and tougher and tougher. So he's right. Like I wouldn't go, like now I do it because it's, you know, I, 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 uh, I exercise <laughs> and work out and I don't train anymore, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, no, I, I wouldn't go for like six, six mile runs unless I was like on vacation. I just wanted to get a sweat in or something, but it, he, he's right. It, I, I, the longer days mean it was three and four hundreds, whereas the shorter days would like, you would do one fifties or two hundreds, um, or, you know, the, the 30 yard basically where you're just working on first step type stuff. Are there mental things? I mean, outside of like taking it seriously and putting in the work, are there mental things that separate the guy who's, you know, 10, 8, 5 consistently versus 20, 30, 40? Yes. Um, one, people, some people are just, you know, gifted mentally. Um, but it's weird. Like people say, oh, he throws the racket. He's not tough mentally. I'm like, there's a lot of hotheads who have been really good tennis players. Jimmy Connors. Um, Connor, I mean, you can go on, you know, I mean, Novak. Back and row, Novak, yeah. I mean, Novak. I mean, it's like, you know, Andre got kicked out of a couple tournaments. You know, it, it, the list goes on and I, I wasn't exactly like calm. Um, you know, so I, I think, I think one, it's like some of the guys probably fake it a little better and that matters. Like, you know, there, there are some guys that you're playing who all of a sudden it's, you know, early in first set and they're, they like, they like to be dramatic and show you that they're tired. They like to show their box. Like they're going like this and like, Bro, you don't you don't want this. Like you don't you don't want to you don't want to get in the gutter. You know you don't you don't want to do it the hard way today. So you would see it, but like, you know, Novak later in his career, if he's tired, he doesn't he doesn't show you as much. Like whereas earlier in his career, you could you could I could look across the net and be like, he wants to tap out. Like I can see it. Um, but you know, so lying. I think I don't know. But like, if if you're lying, I still think you're good. You know, well, I, mean, I, think, I think there's I, something to I, it. I guess what I'm trying to get at is like 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 you know you're at the highest level you know, for a long time, very difficult matches. Um, what does mental toughness mean? Uh, it's, it's, I, I think it's taking it on. Uh, I think it's the, one of the things I was really good at is I could take it on the chin. I could lose famously in slam finals. And I guarantee you three days later, I was back to my job. Like I, I was, I was happy to get off the canvas. It's like, I can, I can wallow in self pity and get my two hours of work in like the, 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 those, don't, those, those don't have to be separate issues. Um, but I, I honestly think a lot of mental toughness that doesn't get talked about is preparation. You know, it's a lot easier to worry about something mentally. If you know, you've eaten everything, right. If you, you, you get your sleep, if you, you go through the paces, you're not worried about your body. Like when I wasn't in shape and all of a sudden I'm in the third set and I'm not feeling great. I'm not as mentally tough because I'm like, I'm kind of starting to panic a little bit. Like, I don't want this to go longer. You know, maybe it's affecting my decision-making. Uh, maybe I'm making stupid decisions because I want to tap out of points. Like that matters. I think preparation at the highest level matters mentally. And, and a lot of people don't put those together. You talk about being able to take it on the chin. So somebody could, you know, disappoint you on the court, win a point, you know, that you wanted to win and you could bounce back. And that was a big part of mental toughness. I think so. Like, I don't know. Like it's weird. Like there's this weird thing where someone will take it on the chance. Like, Oh, but like, you know, I, I was tanking or like, I'm like, how the fuck is that a defense? Like 
have some pride. Like, you know, so I don't know, like you could lose something, whatever. Like I, I took pride in like my, I mean, my dad was a farmer from Wisconsin and so he didn't really suffer. Uh, he didn't really have pity for much. So like you get up and do you do your job, you go to work. Um, and, and so that was kind of always my mentality. And it was, it was pretty simplistic, but you know, you lose, you, you lose a first set and it's, you're feeling bad and you know, whatever it's like, what are your options? Like, just go back to work, <laughs> you know, get, get back to it. I, yeah. I saw somebody writing the other day about Nadal is able to accept the losses in a way that allows him to try his hardest because he's not going to like, like pull, have that reaction where he's pulling back. Cause like, I don't want to lose having felt like I tried my hardest. Whereas Kyrgios is someone who the losses matter so much. He's going to tank or whatever. Well, I think I, Kyrgios, I can't speak for him and I'm sure I'll get a tweet about this when you put it out there, but it, it's, I feel like some people are scared of doing everything they can and maybe coming up short. Um, you know, with him, it's like, there's no doubt if he wanted to be three in the world, he could be three in the world, but like, what if he wasn't? And what if it's easier to pe for people to give him the benefit of the doubt and say like, well, if he committed himself, he's amazing. I'm like, well, it, I mean, if a frog had wings, it wouldn't bump its ass when it hopped. Like, I don't, I mean, what, what, how is that a defense? I don't get it. You know, I, I think there is a fear of like actually throwing it all out there and just not being good enough. And, and that's not something that I ever caused me stress. Like I, I would, you know, you, you throw it out there and you, you see what happens and you get up and you do everything you can. I think the thesis is right. Although we do see that when Kyrgios plays the top guys in the world, he brings it. He wants yeah, to. Yeah, but there's no the pressure. There's no pressure. Like there's no pressure. Like you, you roll it, you, you know, you, it, it, there's no, there's no, like rolling it out there and doing it like in the, the, I mean, it never plays him in a final really because he, you know, he's he not seated like third round against Novak. Like he loses that match. What does it matter? But if you lose to some guy 80 in the world, he's like, oh man, I just didn't even feel like playing. Like it's, it's, it's a different, like I, I almost think expectation is the biggest pressure, right? Yes. Like you're expected to do it. Like I would lose Wimbledon finals and it's like, oh my God, you loser. I'm like, God, fuck man. I, I beat, I got for the 126 of the best players in the world this week. But like expectation is hard and diving in head first and like committing to kind of breaking through that expectation. It's really hard doing it once is when there's no expectation, when nobody expects it is way easier than, than actually like having, I would like, I'll hang my hat. Like I was really good at beating the guys I was supposed to beat. And that's a, that's a certain type of pressure. No, that's really hard when you play the guy who everybody in your community, everybody at your club thinks, well, you're better than him. You should definitely beat yeah, him. That's hard. That's pressure. Cause that's like, fuck, like, like you get no credit if you beat him. And if you lose to yeah. him, like, oh, we, where's the guy yes. who's considered above you? Like you're saying, like, just throw it all out there. Yeah, I, so, I think that's So how right. do you um, break it, through that expectation equals pressure to do what you're supposed to do? You have to like, well, one, you have, again, he's like the perfect example. You have to treat it like a job. You have to like actually care. Um, you know, if you're, if you like being the guy that everyone, you know, just like, oh man, but when he goes, he's amazing. Like that's a very comfortable place to be. There's no expectation. You don't have to perform consistently. You kind of have to like be flashy and like, YouTube loves you. And you know, it's, it's like, you know, I get more questions about curious. I'm going, do you care about any of the guys that actually have ever been top 13 in the world? Or do we, are we just, you know, it, it's just a very easy kind of, I, I feel like it's a pretty simple existence, you know, there's, you, you, but if you commit to it and you come up short, that, that actually hurts your soul. Like that, that has a weight to it. It's not as if like, oh, well, I'm, I'm leaving. I don't, I don't care. I, I just don't care. That's a very easy place to be. You're not going to, you're not going to add a zero to your bank account doing that, but 
you know, it's it's a simple place to be. Now, there was a great article in the New York Times Magazine about Daryl Strawberry that made the same point that everybody told him you could be the best baseball player of all time. And he kind of looked at it and was like, well, if if I try my hardest and I don't get there. And I'm not. Yep. That's more scary than I didn't try my hardest. I could have, but I didn't try my hardest. There's also like I would value um, I would value respect more. And I think the people that like at the end of the day, you come up short. There is hopefully a built in respect level with the way you went about things. And that lasts forever. Right. At the end of your day, like talent, people remember your talent, but they kind of like it's not it, it's not this built in thing. Like, oh, that, that guy was cool. Whatever happened to that guy, as opposed to like if you take it on the chin and go about it the right way. Like respect lasts forever. But if you can shut out the world and shut out the idea that you're supposed to be X guy, that's even better, right? Then you can just do the job without worrying about like, what's everybody going to say if I lose to him? I don't think it's a matter of what's everyone going to say. I, I, I think it's actually, I think that's probably impossible these days just because you do have to go to press and you have to like, well, you, know, you have to deal with questions in a, in, a, in a certain way. But like at a certain day, you just have to put... Um, you have to put priority on on doing things the right way and maybe take a certain amount of pride in in, in like process as opposed to like just all based on on a result. You take you know I, I always wonder how a guy like you or a big time athlete thinks about deals with press and you take me back to a moment. Uh, I don't even know if you remember this, but maybe you do. There was a U.S. Open match early on uh, that you dropped, and there was a tiebreaker. You got a bad call and. Uh, and you told the uh, fi- the referee about it, how like you know what the f- you fucked me, and then you played like three or four bad points in a row after that. And uh, I was in the presser right after, and you were like, "Yeah, I got a I got a bad call. What the fuck?" And I was like, "Um, Andy, uh, yeah, you got a bad call, but was it the call that fucked you or your reaction to no. the call?" And I'm like, "Is he sitting there thinking you?" fucking little shit like you've never been out there with the pressure that i'm dealing with like shut your fucking mouth i have i have kind of a thing i tell my friends all the time i said i i I try to make it a thing not to be offended by truths um you you know so if if it's a factual thing like you played three horrendous points after you went nuts um because two things can be true Right. I, 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 you know, you, you can get it, but like, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't have been offended by that. I mean, to, 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 to say, so if I would have really been upset about that, I probably would have remembered it. Like still, I don't forget much that that kind of really pissed me off or I deem as unfair. And I don't really remember that. So that probably means I wasn't too pissed about it. I mean, in, in the moment you're pissed about everything, but you know, then the next day you wake up and you know, I, I certainly remember certain times dealing with journalists. I can tell you that I was upset. <laughs> I ask everybody, what's your superpower? What is the thing that you do better than other people that has led to your success? What do you think it is? Mm. Um, I think I think I'm a, I'm a bit of a realist, and I think it, it, I think it's good and bad. But I I was very like I, in my tennis career, I was okay with saying like, listen, this isn't working. I know you did this and you normally did this well. Let's adjust. Let's try something new. Let's let's uh, I, I'm not scared. I, I'm not stuck in the mud with what got me success, whether it's in tennis or business or whatever else. Um, I'm a bit of a realist and I am really good at, at, at seeking advice and knowing who would actually have the right answer. Um, so I, I and I'm, I'm, I'm really good at kind of seeking uh, out answers 
um, whether it's uh, with our with our nonprofit, our, our, our foundation, or my my kind of post career in, in business or in tennis. Uh, I don't have pride about needing an answer, um, and, and I'm able to kind of uh, break down who might have that answer. Certain people think different ways, so I'm I'm, I'm good at sourcing information. Yeah. I, last thing I ask everybody, you know, what does having money do for you? And you grew up, you know, a nice middle class, what have you. But like now, you have a lot, and you're able to have this foundation and give back and take care of kids. And like, you know, what is the 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 joy of being able to be a philanthropist at this stage. That's great. I mean, it, it, but also you, you got to kind of give a tip of the hat to, I, I was in the right vacuum. You know, if you're in a sport and your Mount Rushmore of your sport is, is Arthur Ashe and Billy Jean King and Andre Agassi and, you know, Roger being, the, you know, the lead ambassador for UNICEF forever, then building schools on his own uh, Venus and Serena with the literacy, the culture of tennis is that. Um, and so you, you know, when Andre's doing stuff and all of a sudden you're 18, you're like, well, I want to do that too. Like I've seen you firsthand. I see you spend an hour on the phone while we're traveling. God knows where doing exos and you're on the phone for like an hour breaking down financials. You know, what's your plan for that? I'm going, man, that is awesome. Um, you know, so I, I always say money, it doesn't change who you are. It, it exaggerates who you are. Um, you know, so if you're create wild and crazy, that's not going to die. Um, too much, you know, and Rafa is actually a good example. If you were to say, what's Rafa's superpower? I, I would, I would have said playing like he's broke every day. I don't know how you do that when you have what he has. Thanks so much to Andy for a great interview and thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, Gerville Calais, Michelle Brenda Cox, Kathy F., Dr. Keena Murphy, Earl Dorsey, and Theo Tokis. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. <laughs>